Welcome to the OKC First Church of the Nazarene podcast. At OKC First, we are learning to do three things, friendship with God, friendship with one another, and open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Amen. Maybe seated. Difficult words again. Um, but we will try to make some sense of this Paul character and what seems at first glance to be a chameleon-like faith. Oh, okay, you need me to be different? I'll be different. You need me to be different over here? I'll be different over there. We will make some sense of that along the way. Let me start by saying um, every year it is a great honor and privilege uh, to sit on the ministry board. So Jason and I and Monty neighbors get to sit on this ministry board every year and we hear the testimonies of these people who come through for first year district licenses and we have a few of those and for folks who are going to renew their district license and we have several of those and for folks who are on the ordination track and we'll have some news to announce about that later on. Holly came in this this year and like uh, Jason said, Kurt will be a part of that process in the future. So that's what you're seeing. You're seeing people who are surrendering all. And surrendering all means a certain thing for some people. For Kurt and Holly, it means Denmark. Denmark's incredible. Where I think they still have Vikings. So that'll be very exciting to live amongst the Vikings. So um, I made that part up. Okay. This is St. Ambrose. St. Ambrose. Who is famous for saying this. When in Rome. Have you heard that phrase before? When in Rome. When in Rome. Now, we have made it mean something that he did not intend. So here's what we've made it mean. Look, your ethics, perhaps your scruples, your morality structure is going to, to change dependent on where you find yourself. So when in Rome, it's kind of like when in Vegas, right? That's sort of how we have interpreted this phrase. You, you need to know that nothing could be further from the truth. First of all, it was uttered by a guy that we call saint, Ambrose. And Saint Ambrose would not say to you, let your morality structure be different depending on where you find yourself. That is not what's being said. Here's what happened. Here, this was a career politician and, and actually a, a business person who moved into uh, the realm of politics, who then was called by the church to be the Bishop of Milan. Incredible. And actually he resisted it, fought it, actually hid from it for a while, but then said, okay, I will be the bishop in Milan. But they celebrated the Eucharist each week in Milan on a particular day of the week. They had theological reasons. There were deep reasons to celebrate the Eucharist on this one day a week, not any other day. We were right, they were saying, we are right to celebrate the Eucharist on this particular day, and we're not going to celebrate it any other day. And anybody else who celebrates it on any other day doesn't understand it like we understand it. Well, by virtue of being the bishop of Milan, he had opportunity and reason to go to Rome all the time, like perhaps on a weekly basis, and they celebrated the Eucharist on a completely different day, completely different day, and they had their reasons, deeply held, tightly held, theological reasons to celebrate the Eucharist on a different day. So when in Milan, he celebrated on this day, but when in Rome, he celebrated on another day. It had nothing to do with change, the morality structures dependent on where you find yourself. It had everything to do with loving people where they were. Loving people where they were. 
And it wasn't worth the fight. It wasn't worth the discussion, really, even. When in Milan, we'll celebrate a very important ritual, the Eucharist, on this day for these reasons. But when in Rome, we'll celebrate on a different day for these reasons. Make sure if you're going to use that phrase, use it right. Use it correctly. It does not bespeak a morality structure that changes depending on where we are. And by the way, if you go to Vegas, please be Christian there too. This uh, passage of scripture in this sermon is in so many ways an extension of last week's. So if you'll just give me a quick 30 minutes, I'm just gonna go through last week's sermon and tell you what was said. Here's what was said last week. This is a letter written to Paul and it is just full of complaints and critiques. And we're gonna to get to some of the critiques of Paul today, but last week it was a complaint. These enlightened Christians, these enlightened Christians knew that there were no other gods, these other idols and all these other rituals and, and all these ceremonies to honor these other gods that featured the sacrificing of meat and then the consumption of said meat. These other rituals don't mean anything, said these enlightened believers, and here's the thing, they were right. There aren't other deities out there that we're sacrificing to. They don't even exist. It's okay to eat this meat sacrificed to idols because the other idols don't represent gods who exist. And Paul is saying, you're right. Here's the problem. You're right. No other gods. Got it. But there are other people watching you eat that meat who are damaged because you're eating that meat. Other people are being damaged. And they were called the weak the not yet sturdy in faith. The weak can't handle it. When they saw this meat sacrificed to idol, then being eaten, they were somehow being drawn back to that other faith system. And Paul was saying, look, you're right, but don't choose your enlightened place over your relationship to the other. Love trumps enlightenment. <laughs> so that was all of last week's Paul is still going to say those same kinds of things. And in fact, today, Paul is going to give us some idea of what this love looks like. And I think that's the most important part today and the part that I am most interested in today. Okay, Paul, then what does this look like? If I'm going to be this person that chooses love over some enlightened state, if that's really going to be the crux of the matter where Christianity is concerned, still I need to know what it looks like. Because really, what Camber read earlier, I mean, Paul has really opened himself up to critique when he says, I'm gonna be this for these people, and I'm gonna be this for these people, and I'm gonna be this for these people. I mean, a lot of us would look at that when we would say, chameleon, perhaps even hypocritical. But then Paul says this, I'm going to do all of this in the hopes, I've become all things to all these people in the hopes that by all these means, I might save some, save. Had this discussion with my Sunday school class this morning. In order to really grasp what it is that Paul is doing here, we actually have to take a second look at that word save. What does it mean to be saved? Well, you ask 100 Christians, you might get 100 different answers. What does it mean to be saved? Is it just to make the decision, repeating after the person up front, and therefore care for my eternal destination? Is that what it means to be saved? Is a person saved just because they say, okay, I accept Christ, 
and now I'm going to heaven and not hell. Is a person saved at that point, and is that all that salvation is? Now, B, please hear me. Yes, that is a part of what it means to be saved. That's part of what it means to be saved. But there is so much more to being saved than that, so much more, that if you limit yourself to that very thin, and I would say two-dimensional because it's way out in front of you at the moment of your death, if that's all that salvation is for you, not only will you not understand Paul, but I suspect that you aren't really enjoying your salvation. You cannot understand Paul if salvation for you is that one decision whereby you care for your eternity. It is that, but it is so much more than that that it can't be just that. We good? When Paul says saved, when Paul uses the terminology here of salvation, he means something that has a whole lot more skin on it than just that. It's not two-dimensional. It is absolutely every-dimensional. It's right here and it's right now. For Paul, now think about Paul's story. Now this is someone who had been saved. And for Paul to talk about how he had been saved, it wasn't just about his eternity. He was headed this direction. The law, Hebrew law was dictating his every step so much so that he understood himself to be in a place to discipline and punish those who weren't being or, or being ordered or animated by this law. He even held the coats while they killed Stephen, who was just not doing faith right. Jesus himself, a resurrected Jesus, comes to him, rips him out of that way of life, and listen for this, and saves him to a different way of life. No longer animated and ordered by the law, he is now ordered and animated by grace and by love. To be saved for Paul is not just to care for your eternity. It is to care for your Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and all. It is to be moved, salvaged. Hear this word salvaged. It is to be salvaged from this faith system over here that is animated by something other than selfless, sacrificial love, best seen in the person of Christ. It is to be salvaged from this faith system over here to a faith system where the love of Christ animates everything that I am, all that I say, all that I do. That's what it means to be saved. It makes me want to ask you, have you been saved? Well, I did one time in a stadium full of 50,000 people say yes to the person up front who helped me to say yes to Jesus. That's fine. That's a thing, and that is meaningful as long as that was not the ending point, but the starting point. You've got more salvation to enjoy right here and right now. Paul is saying here, if love is going to animate this kingdom over here, and if now I am a person who was animated by law and legal questions and answers, but now I am animated by love and grace, how can I draw more people from that category, the ugly one, to this one where I am? That's what Paul is saying. When Paul says, and we're going to get back to it, when Paul says, I become this to these people and this to these people and this to these people, it's not just to secure their eternity, it's to help them for their Mondays. Their day to day, their hour to hour, the hard work of life and love and relationship 
He's trying to salvage them, rescue them from this way of life to another way of life. And all God's people who are following along said, that's all right, 11, 12, that's good. So to back up a little bit, Paul is suffering a few critiques from the Corinthian church. Here's a couple things that they've said earlier, and Paul answered this in chapter four. They said, Paul, you know, for a wise person, for a teacher slash philosopher, and Corinth had plenty of teachers and philosophers, very eloquent people. They were the people in Corinth were saying to Paul, you're not as eloquent as some of the other people. You're not quite the wordsmith that some of them are. So Paul defends himself in chapter four. But then there was another critique. And Paul, you know, the other wise voices in Corinth, they don't do hard labor. <laughs> They're getting paid to do wisdom stuff. Sometimes they are living with a very rich person and they're being paid to be wise. They are sort of enjoying the spoils of the, the patronage system. They are being paid to be wise. But Paul, you're like making tents. Why, why are you doing that? It's embarrassing to us, Paul, that you're doing hard, menial, manual labor. It's embarrassing to us that our leader, our wisdom leader, would have such an ugly job. And Paul is trying to say as best he can, look, <laughs> this is interesting, I don't want to take your money. I don't want this to be about money. First of all, Paul is saying, I don't want it to be about money and get so addicted to, to your money that you somehow start to edit what I'm trying to say to you when I'm telling you you need to change. Preachers feel that. I'm happy to report that at OKC First, I have never had anybody say to me, hey, if you don't change this message, we're gonna leave. And I have had board members say to me, don't change the message, and if they leave, they leave. So I am grateful for this place. I don't feel that. Paul did not want to feel that. Paul did not want to be in anybody's hip pocket. And so he was doing what he was doing for free. For free. He didn't want this. He didn't want any of this to be about money, dollars and cents. He didn't want any of this to be, to be an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ because, you guys, the gospel of Christ is not about money. You don't purchase your place at this table. There's a reason we ask all of you to come and participate each week like this. There are no card readers up here as you approach this table. That would be a different kingdom altogether. It's this, it's grace. And Paul is saying, yeah, it's grace. It's grace. What I do is grace, and I represent a belief system that is grace. And now Paul starts to say these things. Okay. I am free with respect to all. I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win more of them. What in the world is he talking about? Well, he's saying the same thing that we said last week when we talked about <laughs> Nazarenes and other super conservative folks who grew up not dancing, not going to movies, and not drinking. Now, I have known some of them who get to a, another place in life where they say, hang on a second, I know really good people who dance and who apparently aren't going to hell. Does that mean if I dance, I'm not going to hell? I get to say to them, 
I don't think if you dance, you're going to hell. I don't think if you go see a movie, you're going to hell. Because Kelly sees all kinds of movies. Anyway, anyway, anyway. And I told you last week, too, that even where the alcohol thing is concerned, it seems to me that too often we have lost the backstory, the narrative. And when you lose the narrative but you keep the law, you get legalism. And the backstory to that whole thing about alcohol is this. The Church of the Nazarene, in its birth, said, we will align ourselves with those who are on the margins. And many in those inner city situations were on the margins because they were being handled by, held captive by, the alcohol industry. And so the Nazarene said, for that reason, we won't drink. It's not because we think we're better than our Methodist friends or our Lutheran friends or our Catholic friends who all know a good wine. But we will choose not to drink to be in solidarity with those who would be exploited by alcohol. That's the reason. Listen, good Nazarene, if sitting where you are, good Nazarene, if you think you're better than somebody else who drinks within the Christian community, who drinks, but you think you're better just because you don't, you don't know the story. And there's a better salvation awaiting you. So Paul said, if we're gonna to continue to use alcohol as our metaphor, Paul said, so I won't drink. I will make myself a servant of that population that thinks it's really bad to drink so that I can sit with them and talk with them and listen to them and love them and befriend them. And maybe in the course of this love relationship, in the course of this friendship, I can make them aware of a grace that they are currently not aware of. I can finally whisper to them often enough that they'll finally hear it. God's mind about you is made up and the news is good. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. Paul is no longer animated by the law. His steps are no longer animated or ordered by the law. He was doing those sorts of things, though, and, and, and actually eliminating from his diet. He even said it last week. Listen, if eating meat sacrificed to idols is really going to be hard for these Corinthian believers, then not only will I not, will I not eat that meat, I won't eat meat at all. Because I love these people more than I love my freedom or my rights to do a thing. Though I myself am not under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, seems like it would be the polar opposite, right? I became as one outside the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under, this is important, but I am under Christ's law, <laughs> so that I might win those outside the law. It's not that Paul lacks a core. It's not that Paul lacks an anchor. It's that Paul has a very sure anchor by the name of Jesus. And that very sure anchor by the name of Jesus is the law that allows Paul to be authentic, hear this, that allows Paul to be authentic though he is in all of these different contexts with all of these different people who have all of these different belief systems, but Paul sits in solidarity with and in empathy with and trying to understand these other, trying to craft relationships because that's what you do when you're under Christ's law. In the hopes that over a period of time, this message of faith 
Hopefully, Paul gets to say, God's mind about you is made up of the news is good. And maybe someday they'll understand it because they look at Paul and they say, man, Paul, it seems like your mind about me is made up and the news is pretty good. To the weak, now he's kind of using the Corinthians' words against them. To the weak, I became weak so that I could win the weak. And now he says it. I have become all things to all people that I might by all means save, and remember what we mean here, save some. Tell me you can see it, right? This is not just about the hereafter stuff. This is the here stuff where love animates us and orders our steps in a way that fear and guilt and legalism never could. Paul says, I am loving all of these people in all of these different contexts and it looks different from place to place to place. But what's the same about all of it is this. It is love that starts with Christ flows through me. Now can we talk about evangelism again? I know, I know. I'm with those of you who for a long time have had a little bit of an ugly taste in your mouth when the word evangelism was used because I have seen with my own eyes at a Christian concert somebody (laughs) cornered on a street corner who wasn't at the Christian concert but somehow was motivated at the concert to go find somebody who's lost and make sure that they get found like right now. I have seen Christians attack unbelievers. What if evangelism is something other than that? What if evangelism is my sitting with the other, letting the other, letting the other set the agenda for our being together? What if it's empathy, solidarity, presence? All right, let's be clear about a couple of things. Love animates Paul. Love animates Paul. And so while he is going from group to group to group, he is not going to go so far to empathize or be with somebody else that this love law is violated. So said this to the group this morning too. If Paul wants to win racists, he's not going to go and participate in racist activity to win them because that violates the law of love. Make sense? Are you saying, John, there's a limit? Well, no, love is boundless. This kind of love is boundless, but Paul is not going to join them in unloving activity just to win them. But Paul, because he loves them, will sit with them after and beyond. Here's the other thing. I think this makes evangelism make more sense when it's sitting with, listening to, maybe even being shaped by the other because I love the other. I think that makes some sense. But the person in the room, eaten up with his or her rights to do a thing, has lost sight of the gospel anyway. I was raised in legalism, you might say. I have worked hard to extricate myself from the clutches of legalism. I can drink a beer if I want. That person. Boy, I'm glad you got free of legalism 
But by the way, you just kind of jumped into another one, and it's called my rights. That person has lost sight of the gospel. That person is choosing meat sacrificed to idols over the weaker believer. That person needs to be careful because I have family members that you're not going to help. You're only going to hurt. In other words, to sum it up, (laughs) Paul says, yes, it's important that we be free from the clutches of legalism, but you must still love the legalists. And you can't love the legalists and at the same time be fighting for your rights. (laughs) Just sit with people. If you're more consumed with your rights than what the other person needs for you to be in that moment, as you are trying to put skin and flesh on faith, on the love of Christ, if you in that moment are more concerned about your rights, you're not doing it right. It's not working. Pretty big sporting event coming up. Pretty big sporting event coming up. That's right. The Winter Olympics. Gotcha. Gotcha. These last several uh, Olympic Games, Procter & Gamble has put out this incredible video, incredible commercial. And, and I'm going to play one that was uh, made for the last Winter Olympics and, because I see something in these moms who have sacrificed so much for their kids in the hopes that their kids could be all that they were meant to be and all that they dreamed to be. These moms were a part of the making of an Olympic athlete.
ING, proud sponsor of Moms. Thank you, Procter and Gamble. <laughs> Lots of this. But thank you, Procter and Gamble, for giving us a little bit of a glimpse of what it might look like for the people of God to love others wherever they are. Those moms were out in the snow, too. They were up early, too. I promise you, moms feel every injury, too. They're a part of all of the rehab as well. I promise you, moms, the prohibitive majority of the Olympic athletes that will somehow stand atop a gold medal stand and sing somebody's national anthem, the prohibitive majority of those, of those athletes have had somebody who has sacrificed to get them there. Let's call that evangelism in some sense. What if, like that, you were to go sit with and enable and help and encourage and bandage and help back up. Let's call that evangelism. And maybe, maybe somehow that puts a little bit of skin on flesh on what Paul's trying to say here. One more slide. Does that mean do I just need to hit the button? Okay, my bad. So the question, like last week, it's the same question. The question is not what are my rights, right? That is not top shelf faith. And yet you and I both know a lot of folks are eating up with that question. What are my rights? The question is what would love to? What would love to? And you don't have to look all the way at the, at the Winter Olympics at all the moms of the athletes to see it. I would submit to you that we have a pretty good rendition of that here in Lisa Sanders. Who is where and is what our kids need for her to be so that slowly but surely, Lisa is putting skin and flesh on this statement. God's mind about you is made up and the news is good. And you know how our kids know it? Because Lisa's mind about them is made up. And I promise you that news is good. Grab your calendar. Because on uh, Monday night, April 23rd, at the Oklahoma District Assembly, on Monday night, Lisa Sanders will be ordained into in the history, ordained, long process. <laughs> so here's a question that was asked of Lisa, and I know this because I asked it, uh, in her ordination interview. Hey, Lisa, how would you explain Trinitarian theology to children? And she nailed it. Just nailed it. You do it, she said, by means of a dance where one's always deferring to the other, where one always makes room for the other, a room where one is always reaching for and helping the other, supporting and encouraging the other, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's a dance that never stops. Boom. And she teaches that to our kids by, guess what, teaching them to dance, right? By teaching them to dance. Lisa is a good representation of what we're talking about today. What would love do? I promise you, she's never asking, what are my rights? She's asking, what would love do? She's singing, I surrender all.
If you are taking part in the organizing of our table today, would you go ahead and come on up? And Heavenly Father, would you bless these elements? Would you bless these elements, Lord? The bread and the cup, the broken body, the shed blood, these tangible representations of sacrificial, selfless love. And somehow, God, just just because we have eaten, may we be moved toward Christ-likeness. Somehow, God, as the bread itself is taken, blessed, broken, and given, may we eat and eat and eat until someday we get the sneaking suspicion that we ourselves are to be taken, blessed, broken, and given. In a minute, in a minute I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet, exit your pews to the left, and come forward with your hands cupped to receive this gift. Again, this is the right posture. We're all beggars at this table, and there will always be enough. So you come forward, having exited your pew to the left, you come forward, and someone snaps off a piece of bread and puts it into your hand, saying, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Don't eat it just yet, but take that piece of bread, dip it into the cup, Someone standing right there will be holding a cup. When you dip it in that, into that cup, that person will say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you, and then take and eat. And then I hope that you will go and find a place to pray that prayer, I surrender all. It's prayer. It's a song, but it's prayer. Now, if you choose to pray it over at these side padded altars, we will assume that you're not only praying that prayer, but you're also there for a prayer for healing. And someone will meet you there to pray that prayer for healing, physical, mental, emotional, relational healing. If you come to one of these front pews, one of these front altars here, we won't assume a thing, but we will come and pray with you. At some point, somebody will put a hand on your back, your neck, your shoulder. Somebody will, just to give you the deep and correct impression that you are not alone. Or you can circle right back around to your seat and pray right there, but I hope that you will still pray slash sing, I surrender all, I surrender all. Surrender your rights. They're not getting you anywhere anyway. Surrender your rights. Surrender your days and your hours. Surrender your lives. How is it that God might be able to put skin and flesh on the concept of salvation by using you to show that it's possible on this side of eternity to be moved from one kingdom to another. If you can't come to us, then Jason and Katie will make their way to you. There is also a small bowl of water here meant to help you remember your baptism. If you need to remember that you are amongst the baptized, then come here and just dip your fingers into that water. Who can partake at this table? Well, hear this. If you, are under, if you understand your need for grace, you are qualified and welcomed at this table. You don't have to have this all figured out. You don't have to be fixed. You have to know you need the grace of God to be fixed. And you are welcome at this table. It was on the night he was betrayed that our Savior took bread. He broke it. Blessed it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you and every time you eat of it,
remember me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. And every time you drink of it, remember me. Remember me. All across the sanctuary now, if you would, I invite you to stand to your feet. Exit your pew to the left. and Come forward with your hands cupped. The gifts of God for the people of God. I would ask Kurt and Holly to come and find your way to, let's say, this altar afterward. And we're going to gather around you for a prayer of commission as well. To Jesus I surrender all, to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily.
pray a few words of confession before turning it over to Jason to pray a few words of petition before turning it over to Dr. Tashton for a commissioning prayer for Kurt and Holly. So if you would like to gather around any of these who have gathered for prayer, this would be a good time to do it. If you're going to gather around Kurt and Holly, this is a good time to do it. Heavenly Father, we confess that at times we are a little too concerned about our rights. Father, we confess that there are times when we perhaps are living beneath the privilege of salvation. Help us to see how it is that salvation can be a three-dimensional, every-dimensional experience and not just something that we ache for in the hereafter. Matter of fact, Lord, help us to see how it is that Paul could say these things that at first glance may seem counterintuitive. Help us to see how it is that Paul can be all things to all people for the sake of love in the hopes that through that love, Paul might be able to salvage some from one kingdom to your kingdom, from a competing kingdom of legalism, materialism, cynicism. Help us to see how it is that our love shown consistently for the other might be a way that you could use us to move someone from one place to another saved place. Thank you, God, for the ways that you are working here, offering freedom and release to so many who have been captive in so many different ways. And now hear us, God, as we pray for one another. This morning, as we move into these moments of intercessory prayer, would you please join and tune your hearts to those in our world and those in your life who need specific healing touches from God. Those faces and names and situations may run through your mind and heart in this time, and you can take whatever posture of prayer that you would like to at this time. Before we bless and pray and commission the Johnsons, we do want to have a special time of prayer for Ken Hardy and Laura is here to my left, your right. If you would like to join her in praying for Ken, that'd be very appropriate. And many of you gathered around the Johnsons as Dr. Tashton will pray with them in a moment. Let's pray together for those in our lives who need God. And Lord, we pray for Linda and Lee Nichols. Lee, as he continues to recover from surgery, and Linda, as she's had surgery as well. Lord, be with this household. And may your loving presence guide them and be with them as they move towards opportunities for rehab. Give them strength. Lord, we ask you would continue to be with our friend Glenn and Betty Fain. Lord, as they can't come as often as they would like, may your presence and your love surround them with your sweet grace. And would you bless them in the relationship with one another and the relationship with you. Lord, we pray for our good friend, Debbie McKenzie, who continues to rest at home on hospice care. Lord, we're grateful for Bobby and for the boys and for the class that has surrounded them in love. And Lord, would you continue to tug on our hearts and bless her these days. And may your loving presence touch her life in a very sweet and meaningful way. Now, church, we want to pray for Ken. 
Laura has given me the permission to let you know that it seems like cancer has returned into Ken's body. And this difficult week of the flu and of pneumonia and the inability to deep have deep breaths has probably been caused by a return of the cancer inside of his body. And so these are gathered here now. Would you pray along with me for the healing of our friend, Coach Ken Hardy? And now, Heavenly Father, as many have gathered around Laura and around this family, Lord, we pray now with Laura here for your healing of Ken's body. Lord, we ask that this cancer that's returned and is in some ways not allowing him to breathe, we ask God that in the days to come, you would walk with them and you would walk with doctors and nurses and technicians and analysts to be able to know how best you, God, can use these doctors and medicines to heal his body. And so even now, touch him. Lord, we ask that you would give him strength and hope for each new day. And we ask you to be with his loving family that surrounds him in prayer and presence, that, God, you'd be with them. And may your, God, presence pervade every moment of their lives, walking with them, talking with them, being with them. But, God, now, as so many people touch, Laura, may you heal Ken. Our loving God, we thank you that you bring your kingdom to our world using men and women who give themselves of service to you. We thank you that Kurt and Holly and their children have given themselves in service in this special call that they have received to go to a place where there's a new language new culture, different customs, and they have willingly given themselves to serve you. We pray that you will go with them, prepare the way, grant them the courage and the encouragement that they will need when difficult circumstances arise and challenges face them. May they know that your presence is with them and your spirit goes with them. And help all of us to support them with our prayers and giving and words of encouragement. May this be a time of blessing in their lives and in the lives of many that they will touch. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord, who is one with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Let us now conclude this time of prayer by joining together as we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples using debts and debtors. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and give us our debtors and lead us none into temptation but deliver us from evil thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever